Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman. With me, as always, is Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Glad to have you with me, as always. And for those of you just joining us for the first time, you can find all of our episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can keep track of everything we're doing, both at Tennis Abstract and on Twitter. Carl is at Carl Bialik, and I am at Tennis Abstract on Twitter. We have a lot of tennis to talk about, both from last week and the upcoming week. And let's start with the women's circuit. The big news this week, of course, is the return of Maria Sharapova. She got a wild card into Stuttgart, coming back from her 15-month doping ban. And I think it's fair to say that she, she lived up to that, that she returned at least as a credible competitor. So, Carl, can you walk us through her first week back on uh, as a full-time tour player? Sure. It was exciting. So it wasn't even a full week. She wasn't allowed onto the grounds or into the tournament or back into tennis after a 15-month Meldonium usage ban. That's a mouthful. Until Wednesday morning, she came on site. She had a heavily covered by the media practice session, and then she won three straight, straight set, zero tiebreaker matches, and then ran into uh, maybe orange hot, if not red hot, Christina Mladenovic in the semis. Still went up a set and I believe a break in each of the last two sets, and then Mladenovic won a pretty exciting match at 6-4 in the third. And yeah, Sharapova was pretty much like the Sharapova of old. She was older. She was 15 months older, but she looked just about as good, which is about what your numbers projected. And it's a pretty strong sign that she will be a top contender, if not the favorite in Madrid and Rome. And if she gets in the French Open. Yeah, absolutely. Carl, you mentioned my numbers. I did a piece at The Economist last week projecting what we can expect from her return. And I was using ELO ratings. And, and one of the downsides of the ELO rating system is that there's no penalty for taking time off. It doesn't really take into account that a player in a sport like tennis, if they miss 15 months or any length of time, that they probably aren't as strong when they come back as when when they left. And we don't know what to expect from Sharapova exactly, but if she returned at the point that the same level she was at when she left, she's the best active player in tennis. According to ELO, the only person who's better than she is right now is Serena Williams, and we just found out that Serena is pregnant and will be out for the rest of this season. So as far as ELO is concerned, Sharapova's our number one. The research I did for the Economist article suggested that players who miss a lot of time, and I I didn't break it down by reason because there aren't that many data points to work with. So we're talking about players who missed a lot of time, more than six months due to pregnancy or injury or anything else that keeps them off the court for that much time, that after a little bit of a a hiccup for the first few matches, which Sharapova's pretty much through at this point, after that first few matches, players' ELOs are about right. They're just about 100 points too high. And to put that in concrete terms with Sharapova, she's at about a 2,200 right now, which is really great by ELO terms. And it's almost 100 points above the next best active player, Johanna Conta. So if we knock off that 100-point penalty for for Sharapova's layoff, that makes her about a co-number one with Johanna Conta. And as we saw the last week or so with Conta's performance in Stuttgart and at Fed Cup against Simona Halep, Conta's not much of a threat on clay, at least 
based on what we've seen so far. So as you say, Carl, there, there's not. It, it's tough to pick anyone else as a favorite above her for the French Open. Now the big question is with the French Open is will she get in? So Carl, what do you think at this point? Do you think the French Open will give her the wild card? Do you think she should get a main draw wild card? Yeah, that's that's beyond the kinds of forecasts you and I are able to do very rigorously, but it it does seem like for the good of the tournament, it would make sense to have her in the main draw if they want to have the strongest possible field. And it's not really the FFT, the, the runner of the tournament and the, the French Tennis Foundation Federation, excuse me. Uh, it's not it's not their job to decide on discipline and meet out discipline to Sharapova. That's centralized with the ITF and and, you know, other world sport bodies, and they've made their decision. So I think it would be especially debatable this year to give a wild card to a mid-20s French player well outside the top 100 just for the sake of a slight boost to French tennis. And it would uh, really suck for player number 104 or 108 or whoever would be the last one in um or the one or you know someone else they could give a wild card to but uh yeah i I just think that it it would be a real real blight on the french open field and the strength of the field if if she weren't in it despite having been active for a month now i'm saying that now she could crash out in madrid or rome she could have an injury because it can be a shock to the body to come back on tour but I, i certainly hope to see her there i did make a case in a previous episode for wild cards into qualies. And that's been one route suggested for Sharapova to get into the French and the the French open, unlike Wimbledon holds its qualifying tournament at the venue. So the venue could handle the potential crush of fans and media if she played qualies and I would give her a better than 50% chance of qualifying her way in. So, so that would be a potential, compromise route into the tournament but i hope one way or another we see her in the main draw and i also hope that she isn't facing any of my favorites in the early rounds yeah that's one of the most interesting things about her comeback is we have a player who is arguably the best player in the field at this point and she's not going to have a seed for some time i mean depending on the the various scenarios of, of how far she advances in her first few tournaments it'll take some time to get to the point that she's ranked in the top 32 or so that you'd need for a Grand Slam seed. And that means that she could, you know, assuming no one's tinkering with the draw, she could get a first round meeting with Angelique Kerber or Kanta or Pliskova or Simona Halep. And in, in a more a, a more conservative forecast, we could just say she's very likely to face a good player in the first two or three rounds. Based on what we saw at, at Stuttgart, I wouldn't want to be that player. It's certainly not someone like Kerber, who's pretty shaky on clay and, and certainly has been shaky this season so far. But even someone, one of the best players on clay at this point, Simona Halep, hasn't had much success against Sharapova in the past. So if Sharapova is in that main draw, I think there will be a lot of players crossing their fingers that Sharapova will at least end up in a different section, if not in the other half entirely. 
Now, uh, ju- moving on from Before Sarah, we uh, move on, I just want to remind us and, and listeners that the U.S. Open faced a pretty similar decision on the men's side last year. And from their perspective, maybe the worst case scenario isn't Sharapova facing one of the other top contenders in the first round, but Sharapova facing one of the top French hopes in the first round. And Steve Johnson is, for what it's worth, one of the best U.S. hopes at, at most slams these days. And he said that it would be a shame if Juan Martin Del Potro got a wild card into the U.S. Open last year and faced a top American early. And then as the tennis gods had it, Del Potro took out Steve Johnson early in the U.S. Open after getting a wild card. Now, it was a very different decision because Del Potro wasn't out uh, and had a low ranking because of a doping violation, but because of injury. But all that might be all the more reason that if French voices very loudly say, you have a chance to protect us from Sharapova, you should take it, that maybe they make kind of the ultimate home field choice and, and keep her out. That would be a shame, but it's an argument that's been stated publicly before, so I'd be surprised if it weren't stated privately. Yeah, and it's just ridiculous to me. It, it it seems so dumb when Steve Johnson said that, and I think it might even be be more dumb in the case of, of French players trying to protect themselves. Because, for one thing, it's certainly in the case of Del Potro, and, and I think for Sharapova as well, these players who are potential wild cards, they're bigger stars in the country of the slam than the home players are. I mean, if you did a poll of, of American tennis fans and, and tried to get a sense of how much they liked Juan Martin Del Potro versus how much they liked Steve Johnson, I think you'd get a lot of answers along the lines of, who the heck is Steve Johnson? And I don't know enough about the French tennis fan mind to confidently say the same about French tennis fans and, and French uh, women tennis players, but I think you'd have a very similar story. When you look at the fans who are filling out the middle, or, or the middle 80%, let's say, of, of fans who are paying their money to, to go to Roland Garros, they want to see Sharapova. They don't, they like Caroline Garcia. They'd love to see Caroline Garcia or Mladenovic or someone like that make it to the, the final rounds. But do they really want that at the expense of having Maria Sharapova in the draw? That seems ridiculous to me. What do you think, Carl? Well, I generally agree. I would make two small distinctions. One is uh, there's a difference between liking a player and wanting to see them. It could well be that they like Garcia and Mladenovic more abstractly and would rather, if if given the choice, have one of them go deep than Sharapova, who's won the French Open a few times, but or at least a couple of times. But in terms of who they would actually tune into on TV and who they would want to go see, Sharapova might still win that contest. That's one distinction. The other one I draw is that the decisions that the slam organizing bodies make are not always optimizing for the success of the tournament and the local interest, they could be optimizing for the success of players. There's a, it's not always a conflict of interest, but there's a potential conflict of interest between an organizing committee being the national tennis body for the host country and also being the organizer of the tournament. If they were strictly going for the best possible tournament, they'd probably give fewer wild cards to players from their home country who no one in the home country has heard of because they've never cracked the top 100. So if the FFT is deciding primarily as French Open organizer, I think Sharapova's in in a heartbeat. If they're deciding primarily as what will maximize the long-term career prospects of players from France, they might make a different decision. 
Yeah, that's that's certainly true, and that that conflict is a very real one. It's one that I've written about in the past and and thought a lot about. It drives me crazy because as a as a tennis fan, I I like to think I'm fairly global in my outlook, even though I grew up as a big fan of American tennis players and and watched the U.S. Open first and foremost above all, all everything else on the calendar. But you're right to to say that when when t- these tournaments are choosing who to give wild cards to, who to put on the main courts, that sort of thing. They are thinking in terms of, of the home fans, in terms of the home players. Like it is, it, it, it's provincial in a way. And it's, it's a shame because it, it compromises a little bit the fairness of the sport. And I, I'm, I'm getting off track and pretty far away from Sharapova here. But when you start talking about Grand Slam wild cards, it's a, an easy step to take to look at the players who, who do get these wild cards. Like, I don't know, Alize Lim at the French Open. She's, she's not someone who's likely even to make the second round of a Grand Slam. And, and she was given a, a wild card last year uh, at the French Open. The other French players, a, a lot of the other people who would, who would probably get Roland Garros wild cards on the women's side are just not very convincing. So you wonder what exactly the point of that is. It, at, at some point, it's just a, a question of... of putting French players in the draw because they can, uh, because they're helping their careers a little bit, even if those careers don't have a lot of promise. If you, if you look at those players, France might have one or two solid prospects at any given time, but once you get past that first two, maybe three wild cards to promising youngsters, like you said when we started this discussion, you, if you've got somebody in their mid-20s who's not in the top 100 making the, the main draw cut, then what are you really doing for them? you're giving them maybe $20,000, whatever first-round losers get. So you're helping their career in a way. You might give them a little boost in terms of ranking points. They might get lucky and get an easy first-round draw. But in the long run, you're not you're not doing that much for them. You're doing nothing for the sport. And I don't think the fans care very much either, except for maybe a small group from the hometown or some kind of local supporters. So it's a shame that you have that conflict where the slam has it in their interest to support local players almost no matter what, and there's very little benefit to the sport of having the French number 272 in the world getting a spot in the first round that would be would would carry with it so many benefits for other better players with, with better futures. Um, Carl, before we move on, you have anything to add? Yeah, to I... And, and by the way, you know, you said we're getting far afield from Sharapova. Hey, this is a podcast. We can go wherever we want. We don't have to. We're, we're not going to be a news report about just what happened and what's going to happen. So I'm, I'm happy to take this even further afield and, and get a little crazy. Um, before I do, I just want to say that we're not just being hypothetical here about helping French players to people who don't follow the Grand Slam wildcard system as closely as Jeff and I do probably. This is very real. Every slam gives the majority of its wild cards on the men's and women's side pretty much every year to players from their country. And there are some systematic deals with between countries, generally between host countries, which is notable. So uh, an American man, an American woman will get a wild card into the French Open, which is great, I guess, in terms of diversifying the wild card pool from just French players, but again, doesn't help anyone but the four longtime host countries. And and Carl, uh, there's one there's one even further negative with that swap process is, is that, yes, it does diversify the wild card pool at any one slam, 
but it, it actually has the opposite effect of diversifying the overall wildcard pool because especially before the U.S. was doing their, their wildcard playoff, if you had sort of a, a golden boy like in the U.S., a Donald Young or Ryan Harrison who got all the wildcards, the, the swaps would mean that someone like Donald Young would not only be almost guaranteed a U.S. Open wildcard, they'd also get that one U.S. Uh, exchange wildcard for the French Open, maybe also one for the Australian Open. So you put even you give even more freebies to a single player rather than just random French players or random U.S. players. So, sorry for the interruption. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely true. I, I think the playoff is a big improvement. So now you actually have to earn your way in if you're an American. And I think on the men's side, but not the women's side this year, the playoff, such as it is, it's not really like a, a separate tournament. It's how many points do you get at clay events. On the men's side this year, they're collecting them at any clay event. So it's not just limited to a few in in the U.S. But where I was going with that is... In, in that sense, in the sense of the wild card system, in the sense of the slams being by far the biggest cash cows in the sport and so much of the money they generate being plowed back into the national uh, foundations, federations uh, for the sport, it's, it's really a long-term disadvantage for other countries, which on the one hand you could say is all the more credit to all the non-host countries and all the success they've had, including countries like Argentina, Switzerland, Belgium, Serbia, Croatia, uh, very Europe-heavy, not not coincidentally in that list. Japan, another one. But it's why I would not shed much of a tear if the slams eventually someday rotated. And I know that's just considered by most tennis fans a crazy idea. And how could you have a year without Wimbledon, I think you could have Wimbledon, but just maybe not have it be designated as a slam that year. Do you think that would ever, ever in our lifetimes happen? I don't think that would ever happen, but where I thought you were going with that before you suggested something as as completely insane as rotating the slams is just either doing away with the wild cards or or rotating the wild cards. And I don't know whether there is a good way to, to rotate them or, or for some governing body to, to equally hand them out. That's, that's kind of what the ITF tries to do with the Olympics, and some of the results are, are really strange and inexplicable. But I personally would be totally in favor of reducing the number of wild cards at slams to maybe not zero, but way down from eight. Because every, every slam, there's always a few players who they're there for some kind of nebulous slam experience or some kind of favor being traded and I don't think that has any benefit for for really anybody except for that one player where there is somebody out there who's number 107 in the world who's on the outside looking in and that's the real shame and I think that's that's a much more practical change to make from moving the slams around I think that there is there is some potential in in having a somewhat more fluid uh, a fluid calendar from year to year, maybe putting more higher profile events in places, even if they can't support it every year. Like, it seems crazy that Argentina has this one 250 on the men's side. I don't think Argentina even has a, a women's tournament, although they don't have as, as much of a presence in the women's game. But Argentina, which has been just, just a nonstop supply of not only great players, but entertaining players, has a 250. And Serbia has nothing. Even even Russia, which has given us so much, uh, they have a premier on the women's side and a couple of 250s on the men's side. It's, 
it's crazy, really, when you think about it, how many tournaments are in the U.S., in France, in, in Britain. And partly that's because of sponsors. Partly that's because of fan interest. But a lot of it is just due to history. That's where the tennis was 50 years ago, even 100 years ago. Therefore, that's where the slams are now. It has nothing to do with where the talent is coming from now. It doesn't have as much to do with where the fans are now. And for a sport that's always looking for ways to expand the fan base, uh, be more interesting to more players, it seems kind of crazy that the physical locations of the sport itself would be so tied to where they were 100 years ago. Yeah, I mean, one way you could do it to flesh out my still, as you said, somewhat insane idea would be for countries to earn points based on their performance over a year or five years or a decade and have that determine future placement of events. And if not slams, then tour finals or masters or or other big events. You mentioned all the assets Argentina brings to the sport. Its fan base is a big part of it. And one of the best arguments for Davis Cup not going to neutral sites, because that is a time when you can have top tennis players going to Serbia or Argentina or other countries that otherwise don't have an event big enough for a lot of the top names to go to. Now, then there's a whole other conversation I'm sure we won't have today about the the sort of catch-22 of top players then passing on Davis Cup or Fed Cup because of its current format, so you don't actually get them that often going to these other countries. But when Federer, let's say, does do a Davis Cup tie or a um, an exhibition in a new country, the level of excitement is just extraordinary. And it doesn't need to be you know one of the greatest of all time to have that effect. It could just be a great player that people mostly have just seen on TV. Do you think there's any potential, and I know we, we should get off this and on to another topic, but do you think there's any potential, at least you know, a much less radical proposal for more sharing of the revenue from slams? Because we're talking about the benefit to the home country from wild cards, and sure, that's big, but I think the money they make is possibly even bigger. Yeah, that's absolutely a factor as well, it, or that speaking more directly about the Sharapova situation, the slams don't have as much of an incentive to improve their tournaments as any other event like a 250 or a 500 does. When you look at the incentives for any tournament below the slams, maybe below a couple of masters, they wouldn't flinch at the chance to bring in a Del Potro or a Sharapova. There would be there would virtually no question except for maybe some lingering ethical concerns. But with a slam, yeah, Sharapova is going to make the tournament better, yeah, some people will maybe in, be more engaged with the event if she's there. But will it change ticket sales that much? I mean, the French Open's basically sold out. It's been sold out since pretty close to the first day that tickets went on sale. So what does Sharapova do for them exactly? And I think that that's the same for all four slams. They basically sell out every ticket they put on the market. So it's more of a long-term nebulous issue of whether they'll try to improve their draw in a certain way. So they're not lacking for money, obviously. As you point out, that's something that they as an advantage that those federations have over other tournaments. And ultimately the question becomes how feasible it is that someday tennis would have some sort of commissioner or an all-powerful governing body. Right now it has nothing of the sort. The ITF is the only entity that's even close, but the ITF has no say over anything outside the slams at the top level. So it would take a really big shift for there to be 
to, to be profit sharing. And I think there's a lot of benefit to be had from that. It drives me crazy to see promising players from countries that aren't very rich and don't have a tennis history who are who have to fight so much harder than a player of equivalent skill in the U.S. or certainly the U.K. or France. So it would be it would be great if we could snap our fingers and make that happen. I, I hope it does happen at some point, but it seems it, it seems like a big ask to hope that that in our lifetime, sure, something's gonna big is gonna change. In the next five years, I I don't see any kind of change like that on the horizon. Okay, I'm ready to talk about other things. Okay, <laughs> all right. So uh, moving on to other things, let's stick with Stuttgart for a, a few more minutes. Sharapova lost in the semifinals to Mladenovic. Mladenovic then lost in the final to Laura Ziegemund. And Laura Ziegemund is a great story with Stuttgart. Uh, she, she really seems to bring up different emotions and running the gamut with different fans. Some people really don't like her. But she's a really interesting player. She's had a lot of success in Stuttgart, making the final last year getting a wild card again this year and managing to not only defend the final points, but also go on and win her first title there. Uh, Carl, what do you think about Ziegemann's game? Do you, do you think that it's it, it, that she's just sort of a, a one-hit wonder at Stuttgart, or should we expect more from her? I, I think she's really a one-surface wonder at the moment. Not completely, but she's had... Her best results, certainly on clay in Stuttgart, but she's had a lot of other good results on clay. And I could certainly see her making a run at Madrid, Rome, the French Open. And she's not quite a looming, scary opponent on the level of Sharapova in those tournaments, should Sharapova make the French Open. But she's also one that I wouldn't want to see my favorite in the top five or top 10 draw in the first couple of rounds. Now she could be seated, I think at the French open, which would, would help them breathe a sigh of relief at least until the third round. But yeah, she's, she's dangerous on clay and the tactic that she broke out a lot in Stuttgart with a lot of success was drop shots and redrops. And, and it's, it's one that, I love to see because of all the ways that it, it adds a layer of complexity and, and tactical uh, cat and mouse game to, to the sport. I mean, the way that on clay players tend to stand far behind the baseline and hit topspin bombs at each other to suddenly have a short slicey ball that makes an opponent who maybe doesn't want to come into net, especially on the women's side where it's less of an advantage come into net and do it off a ball that's maybe at an angle and taking you off the court. It's, it's really exciting. It's unpredictable. It has effects on every point, even the ones on which he doesn't hit a drop shot because players have to be on guard for it on in moments when they probably wouldn't be against other opponents. So I would love to see her take her drop shot pretty deep into one or more of these upcoming clay events. And not that she's shown much success on grass, but drop shots are really good on grass too. So maybe maybe she'll break that out and, and have some upsets there too. Yeah, I, I agree. I hope we see a little more of her. She ended up having a bit of a dud of a rest of her clay season last year, losing in the first round to Bouchard at Roland Garros. So hopefully she'll do a little better, especially with with a seed, as you point out. Um, the interesting thing about the drop shot, we, we've talked about this off the podcast before, that 
the numbers aren't super clear cut about how effective drop shots are. As you point out, a lot of the benefit is is longer term, just changing how players are reacting to every shot, uh, maybe changing their position a little bit, making them defensive. But just focusing on the on the shot itself, when when someone like Ziegman actually hits a drop shot, I've now charted two of her matches from Stuttgart. The first one was uh, actually can't remember who it was against the, in the round of sixteen, Kuznetsova, I believe. And then the other one that I just charted this morning was her semifinal against Halep that she won. And to give you a, a reference point, the the average player on the WTA wins 50%, 54% of the points, I believe, when they hit a drop shot. And Ziegemund in the 15 or 20 or so matches we've charted of hers is about the same, which, which surprised me, especially since so many of them, them are on clay. And against Kuznetsova, she far exceeded that. She won 65% of the points on which she hit a drop shot. But against Halep, she actually underperformed that. She only won 53% of the points on which she hit a drop shot. And that was a pretty close match. I think it was even closer than, than the scoreline suggested. Halep was pretty flat in the very beginning, and then she lost four straight games at the end to give Ziegemann the match. And I was specifically watching for this because I, I knew we'd talk about it. I didn't see a lot of evidence that the drop shot was was doing much of any good against Halep. The only the only case you might make is that Halep is stronger than Ziegemund off the baseline. So maybe in the situations where Ziegemund hit drop shots, maybe that was the best outcome. Maybe 53% in those points was was better than she would have expected if she had tried to hit a cross-court backhand or something like that to, to keep Halep in the back of the court where she's comfortable. So it, it, it's interesting that it, I agree. It's, it's, it's fun to watch. It's good to see players mixing it up, but it's not 100% clear-cut that it is beneficial. Um, Carl, do you think that players would benefit from, from going for tactics like that more, even though the numbers aren't quite so clear-cut? Yeah, I think that her case shows it really depends on the player and how good they are at the shot and also the opponent. So Halep is incredibly fast and pretty good at handling short balls. And I'm not surprised, even though Kuznetsova is good at both of those things too, that that Halep would have had more success. And I also think what works for for Ziegemann may not work for someone who just doesn't hit a drop shot as well. I mean, a lot of players miss a lot of their drop shots and lose the point just by trying it. And when they do get it over, it, it's not very short. It doesn't have a lot of spin, and it it takes them from being ahead in the point to being behind in the point. So it certainly depends how good you are at it, and I certainly wouldn't recommend that anyone ditch their the rest of their training regimen and just focus on hitting drop shots, as much fun as that would be to watch as a practice session. And it sounds like something Federer would do just for kicks after the third round or something. But I, I also think from a, since, since we're named the Tennis Abstract Podcast, and we probably should get a little abstract and geeky now and then. I think you, you if you're Ziegemann or her coach or her data analyst, which I'm sure she has on her staff of 20, you, you want to see her winning at tour level average on drop shots. Because if she were winning at well above average, it probably meant that she wasn't using it enough. I mean, this is sort of the classic uh, example of this kind of game theory situation in sports is when you're taking penalty kicks in soccer, if you're much better kicking to the right than to the left, then you should be kicking to the right more often, often enough so that you're actually successful equally often. So if you're successful equally often when you're kicking to the left, even though you're worse at it, it means that 
you're kicking to the right so often that the goalie starts guessing you're going to kick to the right and you get a bunch of goals kicking to the left because of the advantage your right side has given you. So if, if Siegemann's drop shot, let's bring it back to tennis, is really as good as I think it is and many fans think it is, she should keep going to it until she's kind of equalized her success with that shot at the sort of average level. And that means she's now using it more in marginal cases where other players probably shouldn't. So this also brings it back to the idea of if you have a good one, use it more. And if if we're seeing her winning at that level, it probably means she is breaking it out on points that you wouldn't think it's an obvious tactic. Now, you watch the match more closely than I did, so, so you would know if that was reflected specifically in the Hallop match, but it's a small sample. But overall, I'd like to see her, if I were her coach, winning at about that level. And then it probably means that when she's not using it, it was a really bad idea to use it, that she's she's not leaving any sort of extra juice from having that great shot on the table by not using it enough. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about it that way. But that does illustrate one of the one of the many difficulties in doing any kind of advanced tennis analysis is if, let's say, that every player were aware of the argument you just made and was totally convinced by it, then they'd all agree that... That's a really big let's say. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we both know, but let's just acknowledge it. It is, but, but these sort of assumptions are really helpful sometimes because even, obviously, it, it's a big leap to suggest that all tennis players are aware of Carl's theories. That That is pretty clearly untrue. But on the other hand, if we assume that players are acting in their best interests, that they've that tennis players and coaches have worked out the optimal way to play the game. That's not quite true either, but that's a lot closer to the truth. And it's often a very useful assumption, even to identify the, the, the instances where players aren't optimizing the way they should be. So back to my scenario, if, if we say that every player is thinking in these terms, going for a 55% success rate on, on drop shots, even if that means going for more if there's someone like Ziegemund and they can, they can get that 55% number by taking a lot of chances, or someone who's really clumsy with drop shots and hits very, very few, only in the most obvious situations, to get that 54 55%, then we would have a, a, a universe of tennis players who all have exactly the same success rate on drop shots, which is extremely misleading. I mean, it, it's, it sounds crazy that you'd have players ranging from the very best in tennis to the very worst in tennis with the same stat. And the only way that I can think of anyway that we could tease out actual information of value from to identify which players are better or worse at drop shots is to have really detailed player position information. And that goes beyond what the match charting project has. You would need to know where on the court every player was when they hit each drop shot. You would need to know how well they would hit other shots because someone like Ziegemund might be hitting a drop shot for a winner where someone like Halep would go for an inside-out forehand and maybe not even come into the net behind it. And Halep's inside-out forehand is probably a lot deadlier than Ziegemund's. Uh, so the whole, the whole mathematics of which shot is optimal at any point changes for every player, and you need to have a huge amount of data to actually tease out those various effects. So, Carl, I think I think you're right in in that point that a player like Ziegemann should be hitting it more. I think it just illustrates how difficult it would be for us to identify the players who maybe are less obvious than Ziegemann who are actually quite good at hitting drop shots, but 
we don't have the ability to identify statistically who they are. Yeah, I and I want to make it even more daunting and complex before maybe offering a couple of ways to simplify it. The, the more potentially daunting and complex uh, spin on this, to, to use a pun intentionally, is that really if you're terrible at drop shots, you probably should have a higher success rate. Now, bear with me because I'm not sure yet about this, so jump in and tell me if I'm wrong. But the way I'm thinking about this is if you have just an awful drop shot and you should only use it where it's it's the obvious thing to end the point, then you're probably using it in moments when your probability of winning the point is very high anyway and where you have other options. So you're only using it where you have a 75% chance of winning the point if you hit a drop shot because you can't really screw it up and the other player is way off on one corner of the court. But you could probably also hit a drive to that spot, or you could probably also um, hit with a lot of topspin and have it kick away from the court in the direction where the player isn't. So in that scenario, a player might only hit it once or twice a match, but they almost always win with the shot. Whereas in, in let's let's accept that Ziegeman is this drop shot master, which maybe we don't have the data yet to totally back up. She should be hitting it even in defensive positions sometimes or in positions that are neutral where for any other player it would be obvious that you just want to hit a neutralizing rally ball, you know, that's kind of deep and and isn't in the middle of the court just to kind of try to reset or even a moon ball. But in her case, she might be able to execute a slicey ball from the baseline that's short and basically a drop shot, even from a position that you would never even think of hitting a drop shot. So she might even have a lower success rate than someone who hits it way more infrequently, but in obvious situations. Now, having said that, I do think there are two signals that you could look at to maybe simplify all this. One is just volume. If a player is doing it all the time, unless they're just always losing and clearly have no tactical uh, acumen at all, there probably is something just to the volume. In a similar way, the players who come to net all the time generally don't have a much higher success rate at net as players who don't. But the fact that they keep coming to net suggests that they are able to win at net, even in situations that aren't obvious situations to come at net. So that's a signal. And then the other potential simplifying scenario is see when a player hits it fairly early in a serve versus return point. Now, this is a little tougher for the WTA on clay because there's not as much of an advantage on serves. You can't necessarily say, oh, if they hit a drop shot and won the point, they had a pretty good chance of doing it anyway. But let's say for the ATP on grass, you could say, okay, if a player is winning points consistently with drop shots on return points early in points, they're probably really good at drop shots. Whereas if they're doing it early in service points, we're less sure. So now we've gotten really geeky, but wanted to throw out those options. Yeah, I think all of that is right. And and even before you said it, I was thinking in terms of, of net points as a good parallel, because almost everything you said about drop shots would apply to, to net points as well that the players who are best at it are the ones who are doing it the most, and they do it so much that their numbers don't make them necessarily look better. And I, while you were talking, I, I looked up the match charting project data for Misha Zverev, who's one of the more aggressive players, plays tons of net points, and his rate of winning points at the net is exactly tour average. So it doesn't exactly match what what your prediction was, but it, it's it's close enough, I think. It suggests that a player who we think of as very good at the net, good enough to, to rush the net and beat Andy Murray on a hard court, is somehow no better than average on those net points. But he's playing so many net points where most players wouldn't. 
mean, sometimes on uh, on match broadcasts, you'll see stats where some someone will will surprisingly be really great on that point. It's like David Ferrer will have won ten out of twelve or something, and you don't think of David Ferrer as a net guy, but on a, in a clay court match, he will eventually come to the net to close out points. And I mean, he's okay at it. He's not a double specialist by any stretch, but but he knows what he's doing up there. But by the time he gets there, he's built the whole point around it. And, it, and that's what you're suggesting with drop shots as well, that someone who has a drop shot on the third shot of a point, is they're using that as a tactic. Like it, it's, not, it's not the logical outcome of a point. It's a player who's very confident in their drop shot. They, they're maybe thinking bigger picture about keeping their opponent off balance, but they're, they're confident enough in it to play it as its own tactic. But someone who only hits drop shots when they get to the eighth or ninth shot of the rally, that they're um, they're all they're already kind of forced into that position. They might not have to hit a drop shot, but the drop shot has presented itself as an option. So I think you've you've offered a couple of of good potential solutions there. One being just the volume, which for Ziegemund, of course, there's going to be so many more drop shots than for most other players on the women's circuit. And the other is at what stage of the rally. And, and both of those things are things that even with match charting data, we can start to get a handle on. So there might be some potential there. But what we do not have is a huge amount of additional time for this week's episode. And we have not even approached the men's tour. So, Carl, let's switch to, over to Rafael Nadal, La Decima Dos. Um, in Barcelona. Can you tell us how things went for, for Rafael Nadal as he, he went for his, his second straight decima? Very, very smoothly. He was playing pretty much all his tennis on center court, which is now named for him appropriately enough. Maybe if he wins 20, they'll they'll name the whole tournament and, and every court after him. And he didn't drop a set. He barely dropped his serve. He dominated Dominique team in the finals, so that that was his toughest opponent, a guy who'd beaten him on clay, a top 10 player, a guy who probably plays best on clay, and it wasn't a close match. And other than that, it was it was smooth sailing. It was even smoother than Monte Carlo, where he had where he dropped a set to Kyle Edmund and dropped a serve, I think, four times to master returner Diego Schwartzman earlier in that draw. So as, as good as he looked at Monte Carlo against a tougher field, he probably looked better overall in Barcelona, even though it was an easier field and had incredible ultimate home court advantage. Yeah, there's certainly a big home court advantage there. And it's, it's interesting to think in the context of this week that we had Ziegemann, who is so much better at Stuttgart than anywhere else. But we also have Nadal, who is just owns Barcelona. With Nadal, it's not quite so clear that it has to do with with the, the location itself or just the fact that it's a clay court and he's really, really good on clay. So if they moved that tournament, he'd probably be just fine. But the, the interesting thing for me is that Andy Murray lost before the final again, so we haven't seen it all against Murray. Djokovic wasn't playing this week. Djokovic was has just played the one clay event. He hasn't faced anybody good. So we saw Dominic team play pretty credibly against against Nadal. I don't think the outcome was really ever in doubt, but but he he's beaten Nadal on clay before. He's he's steadily getting better. I think. Carl, do you think that that team is someone who? Could could actually be a challenge for Nadal at the Masters or at the French Open this year. I think it's possible. 
I think the bigger question, as it is with almost everyone on tour, isn't how would he do if he faced Nadal, but what are the chances he would face Nadal? I, I think if he could get to another quarter or semi or final against Rafa, you know, I'd give him a 30%, maybe a 25% chance of winning, depending on the tournament. You know, Madrid, even though there's, again, it's another Spanish tournament, hasn't been Rafa's best, partly because it's a different kind of environment, higher altitude and so on. So, I, you know, I could see team beating him and probably more likely at a Masters than in a best of five. But like with Marian Djokovic so far, not just on clay, but all season, the real question is, can, can he get to that point? I, I, I don't see Nadal losing probably to someone well outside the top 10 or, or you know, maybe a Juan Martin Del Potro who's, who's looming with, without a very high ranking. So he'll get there to the later rounds, I'm pretty confident, and he might have to face really tough opponents in those last few rounds, like it could be Team, then Vavrinka, then Djokovic, but it could be, you know, Ramos, then, uh, I don't know, Carreño Busta, and then Team in the final. So it feels like a more open ATP, which means as great as Nadal is playing, and I think he's pretty clearly the best clay court player of all time on the men's side, it's not clear exactly whether he'll have to play his best and whether he'll face the best opponents at any point in this clay season. So I think that, that, that but we would agree that even though Murray and Djokovic are, are, have been largely missing in action so far this season, they're still the top threats to Nadal. I think I, I agree that the team is, is more of a long shot, but he is someone that could have a good day, especially best of three and knock out Nadal. Is there anyone else in the field who you think is, let's, let's put the threshold at, say, 15%. Anyone besides those three who you think is a threat to Nadal this year on clay? Well, so if by the time of the French Open, which is supposedly the first and only clay event that Federer is going to play, he and Nadal should both be comfortably in the top four, and they wouldn't face each other at that point until the semis and possibly the final if they both made it. Now, Federer's only won, I think, two out of 14 or 15 matches on clay against Nadal, but he's played him, he's won sets in most of their French Open matches, which I know is not a very high bar, but I would give him above a 15% chance given that he's 3-0 against Rafa this year and has won his last four matches against him, none of them on clay but one of them on a pretty slow hard court in Miami. So, yeah, I think if, if Roger's gotten there, it means that he has, despite no warm-up events, gotten to the semis or finals of the French Open, so he's playing pretty well on clay. And then Nishikori, remember, was, was up a set in a break on, on Rafa, I think, in a Madrid final a couple of years ago and has played a lot of good tennis on clay. He ended up losing that final after getting injured. It's possible Rafa would have come back anyway. Favrinka's beaten Nadal in straights on clay at Rome, I think, a couple of years ago and has won the French Open and is probably best on clay, even though he's won two Grand Slams on hard court. So I could certainly give him above a 15% chance. You know, I, I predicted on this podcast uh, maybe a couple of episodes ago that Joko, that Nadal would win the French Open, and I said that doesn't necessarily mean that I would favor Nadal against Djokovic. It's that I think Nadal is more likely to reach a match where they would face each other. Uh, you and I are both probably Bayesian in how we think about anything in tennis. So like you said, Djokovic and Murray are the biggest threats. We have to think of them as the biggest threats. They had the best clay seasons last year outside of Rafa and probably even including Rafa. 
So I would still give them the highest chance, but in any given match against Nadal, there are other players who, who certainly could take him out. So if, if you exclude the big five, um, do you think that, who do, who do you think would have the best chance to win the French Open? If we end up with another crazy open draw, but no big five or no big four, no Vavrinka, is it, is it Nishikori? Is it team? Is there somebody else you think could, could break through and, and win the French Open? Two other names I'll throw out, which are really not surprising given what we've seen so far this year. One is Del Potro. He's made the semis at the French and was up two sets to one on Federer in the semis in 2009 and has had some good clay results, even if it's not his best surface and has just generally been really solid over the last year or so, like not losing very often to bad players and playing some top players really tough. So I wouldn't give him a very good chance before excluding those five. And since we already mentioned Shikori, I'd have to throw his name out there. And Nick Kyrgios, another player who's probably not best on clay, but has had some really good clay results, including beating Federer on, on clay in Madrid in 2015. So he could beat anyone on any surface on any given day. He hasn't gone past a quarterfinal at a slam. So again, I don't think it's really likely that he'd win. But given that we've just excluded guys who probably collectively have over a 90% chance of winning, maybe well over 90%, even if the algorithm doesn't say that, uh, I'd put Kyrgios up in that next batch of favorites at any tournament. Yeah, uh, he's an interesting name to keep in mind because... until he proves a lot more, he'll always be a dark horse. But as as you point out, he's he's definitely a factor. You, you can't write him out of any match, even any tournament. If if he gets hot or if the draw opens up for him, then he might only have to win a couple of tough matches, and he absolutely can do that. And it, it seems like a stretch to envision him doing that at Roland Garros, but it's definitely possible. So with our, our remaining time, we have a couple doubles topics that I wanted to touch on, since I know our, our listenership is among the most rabid doubles fans in, well, in the world, certainly the, the tennis world. Um, the first one we wanted to talk about was Albert Ramos's absolute futility in doubles. Ramos has made some good steps in singles. He, he reached his first Masters final, losing to Nadal in Monte Carlo. I believe he just cracked the top 20 for the first time. But we just found out, thanks to Tennis.com running the numbers and, and breaking this scoop, that Ramos has lost his last 21 tour-level doubles matches, which to me is almost unbelievable because it's not all with the same partner. He's played a wide ver- variety of opponents. Double seems to be more luck-driven than uh, than singles because the points are so much shorter. You have the third set uh, super tiebreak instead of playing a full third set. It seems like, given a little luck, any credible tennis player could win one out of 20 or 21 ATP Tour level doubles matches. Carl, do you think he's he's really that bad? Do you, do you think he should even still be bothering to enter doubles draw that tour level? I think everyone should enter doubles draws when they can. I, there's an open question whether the ATP should let someone with that bad a record in. And one way to do it, as, as you'd suggested to me offline, would be to maybe make the filter tougher for using a singles ranking. Because clearly when you've lost 21 straight, you don't really have a doubles ranking. Um, but... 
yeah, I mean, it, it, the more guys try doubles, the better. So I don't want to discourage anyone. And now there's a storyline to watch, which I'm sure will pack the seats at tournaments where he enters the doubles draw. People really excited to see if, if he breaks that that streak. It, it's bizarre to me. I mean, we there's a there's a common storyline when singles players enter doubles draws, especially when there isn't some special circumstance like Andy Murray playing with his brother Jamie, who's one of the best doubles players in the world, and also someone Andy wants to see succeed, or Nadal entering a doubles draw with Mark Lopez, one of his best friends, and another one of the best doubles players in the world. Nadal is going to take those matches pretty seriously. Or Djokovic playing with Viktor Troitsky, who's trying to have a go of it on the doubles tour. And, you know, Djokovic, I, I saw them play together in Indian Wells, and Djokovic was taking that match very seriously the same day he had lost and, and been been booted out of the singles draw. So there, there are exceptions, but generally we think of single stars as not taking doubles nearly as seriously, and the prize money and the crowd interest and the TV streaming and all of that justifies that decision. But at the same time, what's the point of entering if you're not going to try to win? I mean, if it's just going to be one practice session and out, which is what it's basically been for Ramos, then you might as well just not not bother. You're not going to pick up any of that additional prize money. You're not going to kind of get that extra match practice and extra net practice. And it's not like he's been in the top 20 this whole time. He was he was much further out in the rankings for some of that period, I think. So he couldn't just look at it as a luxury while, you know, living completely comfortably on the single store. He he probably should have wanted those matches more than a Murray or Djokovic or Nadal would have. And he's not withdrawing or retiring from from the draws like he's he's made some tie breaks he's won some sets he's played with a whole lot of different partners so he's trying things i guess i mean i haven't seen the matches it's not easy to see although probably easier to see than some top wta matches i just think he must be terrible at doubles and and now i'm kind of interested to to watch one of the matches what do you think yeah, I, I, I'm definitely more interested than I was before. It never occurred to me to care about how Albert Ramos played doubles, but you, you do wonder whether he's that bad. And the main thing I wonder about is how much his partners know about that. I mean, it, after Ramos had lost his last 15 doubles matches, did, did the players he was signing up with realize what they were in for? You know, there, there's a, actually a surprisingly good parallel in this from last year, when there was a bit of a, a match-fixing scare about David Marrero at the Australian Open. People thought that he had fixed his double, his mixed doubles match with Lara Aruabarena. Uh, they lost in the first round, and it, was, it wasn't that close, I don't think. And it was in the middle. That was right after BuzzFeed released their match-fixing investigation. So everyone was, was concerned about match-fixing, and, and this came up. But then someone looked at the numbers and found that, that Marrero hadn't won a mixed doubles match for years. <laughs> He's a double specialist, so he was entering every draw, but he, he had lost his last 10, I think. So it's kind of tough to point at someone and say, you're probably fixing when... <laughs> He's not good enough to win, even if he even if he was trying. He he had said in interviews that he he something like he had a harder time playing, looking at a woman across the net, or something like that. That that indicated there was something real going on. It wasn't just bad luck. He was uncomfortable playing mixed doubles, and you wonder whether Aro Verena knew about that. His, his whether his other partners were aware of of how little chance they had. And with Ramos, it seems like the same situation. I mean, you 
you point out that it that it's kind of strange to be entering every week if you're not getting very much practice, not getting very many, very much additional prize money. But that's not just the case for him. That's the case for his partners. So I really hope that someone covering all these tournaments, going to all these press conferences in Europe this month, I hope they track down a few of these players and ask, like, why are you entering doubles with Albert Ramos? Are you a, how long have you been aware that he's been losing so much? Even though the, the streak is relatively new in the last year, he's, he's won something like only 20% of his career tour-level doubles matches. So, so it's not that he suddenly became bad. He's always been bad. Yet there are always players who will enter these tournaments with him. So it, it, it's strange. I, I wish I knew more. And it, it definitely does, it does make me wonder about a lot of these factors. Uh, tennis writers, if you um, listen to this podcast 55 minutes, you get free story ideas from us. So that, that's certainly a reason to stay tuned. Uh, yeah, I know we need to move on. I just wanted to quickly say that I think Morero's streak was even longer than 10 matches. And keep in mind that mixed doubles, there's four opportunities a year or five if there's an Olympics and you can get into the very small draw. So it it's not, you know, you have to really work at it to build up a streak that long. So so credit to Marrero. Whereas in Ramos's case, as you mentioned, he's entering almost every week. He's entering as many tournaments as some double specialists do in doubles. So it's certainly not for lack of trying. And it, it suggests, given that he was bad before, that he's somehow getting worse the more he's playing doubles. So I don't know if it's a mental thing or what, but I certainly would love to hear someone ask him and his partners and his opponents the question. Yeah, just just to clarify, I just checked the numbers, and it was 10 straight for Marrero, but in, in his career he was 7-21 in mixed doubles, which is, is really pretty bad since that, that seems even more luck-driven than, than regular tour doubles. So however you slice it, it it's... He's not quite as bad as Ramos, but he's he's pretty bad at the mixed doubles. But someone who isn't bad, someone who has been getting better with age that we wanted to touch on is Brian Baker, who won a tour-level doubles title in, in Budapest this past week. Carl, I know you're a Baker fan. You've been following his story for a while. For those those listeners out there who, who aren't aware of, of Baker's decade-plus-long saga, Carl, can you catch us up with what Brian Baker has gone up against to get to this point? Yeah, I will catch up a decade plus in a minute minus, hopefully. He was a very promising junior. I think peaked at number two in the world, was looking like he could go on to have a career that some of his peers in juniors, such as Djokovic, had. And then injury after injury, surgery after surgery, comeback aborted by injury and surgery and layoff. And he just kept trying to make it work. Uh, and in 2012, he had his most well-covered comeback, including by my then journal, Wall Street Journal colleagues, Tom Prada and Jason Gay, where he was fit again, but everyone had basically in tennis forgotten about him, brought his racket to some very, very low-level events, started winning, and then getting into higher events and higher events, and eventually into the French Open and Wimbledon and winning matches, I think, at both and it was an incredible story, and he may have gotten back into the top 50 or 60 or so, and then yet another injury at the Australian Open, and then out for a long time. And now he's in his 30s and not having a lot of single success, but he is playing some great doubles. I think you, you pulled that he'd won seven straight finals, including on the Challenger Tour. He'd been playing with several different partners, including some who hadn't had much double success and still winning. And he's now pairing with, I think, Metkic from Croatia, if I have that right. And they just won 
in Budapest, and they are one of the top 20 teams this year, have an outside shot at making the tour finals in London. And it's great to see. I mean, I, I, I saw him win at the Fairfield Challenger with Mackenzie McDonald last fall, and it looked like he was really enjoying doubles, it looked like he had a really natural doubles game. He'd always been a great net player in singles. And I hope it means he can extend his career in full health for a while being one of the top doubles players because he's still pretty young for doubles. Yeah, he just turned 32 in the last few days. So by by double standards, he is young. Um, there are plenty of players who are successful in doubles well into their late 30s. You know, the Bryan brothers, I think they just turned 39. And of course, Daniel Nestor and Leander Pays, I'm not sure if we can count high enough to document how old they are. So if Baker can stay healthy, which seems to be working better for him as a double specialist than it ever did as a singles player, then he could finally have the successful tennis career he's been working on for so long. And it, there are a lot of great stories on the doubles circuit. I think that's one reason, Carl, that, that you and I tend to like it, because there are these interesting stories, players who have who have fought for a long time for, for any kind of tennis success who, who finally get there. And he would be one of the better ones, I think. A, a lot of a lot of his competition on the doubles circuit have, have played a lot of challengers, a lot of futures, made very little money for many, many years and just to finally break through. And his story has a different shape than those, but in a way the payoff is even greater, that, that he, would, he would be able to translate that early success as a junior and some really almost unbelievable tenacity to keep trying to come back and, and have the success he's having now. So I, certainly I'm 100% behind him and, and hope we do see him in London, if not this year, then next year or the year after, or in the case of someone like Daniel Nestor, 10 or 12 years from now. So Carl, I think this just about it wraps up the time we have for this week. Uh, we, we hit on all the all the main points. Is there anything else in, in, in tennis right now that you want to talk about before we call it a day? Yeah, I'm going to run through rapid fire a couple of quick things. One, while the rest of his peers are playing on clay or preparing to, Federer, as we mentioned, not playing to play until the French Open, just at an exhibition in Seattle, raising money for his foundation to do good work in Africa. And it meant him laughing and giggling his way through a doubles match that included Bill Gates and John Isner and then a singles match against John Isner that produced one of the highlights of the week. So it shows that the guy just still really loves to play tennis and also is not taking this clay stuff particularly seriously, even though at that event he reaffirmed his plan to go to the French Open and talked pretty confidently about, hey, you never know, I could do it. I mean, I think there's that a decent part of the reason he's entering the French Open draw is because he thinks he has a chance to win it and then contend for the Grand Slam. And I don't think he has a good chance of that at all, but I love that he might think that. And then I also want to mention that he's not the only oldster who's uh, been succeeding this year. And this week we have Tommy Haas in action, and he's won around. And uh, Francesca Schiavone, one of my favorites, who's retiring this year, she's won around. So it's it's been for a few years a storyline on tour that you can go well into your 30s and still succeed and maybe even play your best tennis of your life. And even though this isn't a big week on tour in terms of, of top top players competing with a few exceptions there are some top players of yesteryear who are still quite good competing and worth watching how about you definitely the the one other player i wanted to add to that list is david ferrer who has been been out of action has been really 
inconsistent this year. Uh, he's the number three seed, I believe, in Estoril, so maybe he'll have a chance to put a few wins together there. And when we're talking about contenders on clay, it dawned on me that this might be the first year in a really, really long time that you can have that conversation without talking about Ferrer. And people have been counting him out uh, at, at various stages for a long time. He's he's never really been a threat to win the French, but he's always been a threat to make the quarters or semis and, and knock out one of your favorites along the way, as long as that favorite isn't Nadal or probably Federer. And... And it, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see whether he does have anything left in the tank at all. It might be that he's he's finally just too far down the aging curve, and and he's really just doing a retirement tour at this point. But but man, it, it's tough to imagine Ferrer having the mindset of someone on a retirement tour. He's somewhat like a lot like Leighton Hewitt in that regard, where yeah, he might think he's retiring soon, but once he gets on the court, once once the competition is underway, he's going to give it everything he's got and. I think against a lot of players, especially on clay, that's going to be enough. He can win some matches. So I'm not I'm not picking him to, to go very far at the French, but but it, it's tough to count that guy out, and it's good to see him still fighting. I agree. Let's wrap it up. All right, so Carl, thank you as always for joining me. This has been episode five. Hopefully we'll be back next week. If you're still listening, you definitely count among our most average fans. So if you have any suggestions for sound quality or recording techniques, we're, we've had some hiccups. We're trying to improve. We're, we're trying some new techniques this week. So let us know what you think. And if you have any suggestions, we'd, we'd welcome them. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week.